0: So I'm going to offer some insights and do some teaching from the readings today, after which we will have some time, hopefully, for your comments, and we'll do some midrash and some scripture discussion. I have to check something here. We've been recording our teachings and stuff because we have a lot of people over the internet that uh, want to kind of follow along with us. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but this week our Facebook fan page for Crown of Messiah was published, and I noticed at least fifteen of you clicked on as fans, and uh we, we regularly post a lot of our congregational activity on there. So if you're if you're on Facebook and you're not a fan yet, check us out. All right. So we're gonna look at the New Covenant passage first and we're gonna hit on a couple kind of key points that I thought were really 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 came alive to me. And I think will move back to the parser also. Did anybody get the Crown of Messiah e-newsletter for the week, and see what the question of the week was. Need a show of hands. Okay, we need a show of hands. What was the question of the week? <laughs> <laughs> Jessica. That's right. Who will the Messiah's 12 emissaries be governing in the Messianic era? Or in this, in this uh, he uses the term, regeneration. So let's look at that first. Chapter 19, verse 28. This is a, this is a fascinating theme that we discussed at our biblical new month our Rosh celebration a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about what is the kingdom going to look like when Yeshua comes back? Are we all just going to be kind of floating, suspended in air, plucking our golden harps all day long? I'd say day and night, but there's no night, of course, and so, just prancing on the streets of gold or, or what's it going to look like? And we talked about how there's going to be a literal thousand-year period of time where Messiah is going to rule from Jerusalem and where many of the ancient promises made by the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many of the prophecies made by the great like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're all going to be fulfilled because they haven't been fulfilled yet. And it has to happen. And uh, this is a great glimpse of that thousand-year period of time. Um, in the Christian world, we call it the thousand year reign of Christ. In the, in the Jewish world, it would be called the Messianic Era. The days of Messiah. And this is a, I really love this little glimpse of it. It's what we see here is a picture of Israel, the people of Israel, is restored to the land of Israel. The twelve tribes are reinstated according to Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Um, their, their tribal portions are reallocated to them, and this is interesting. Each of these, uh, let's call them provinces, each of the tribal <laughs> governor over them. We know who they're going to be. We know who these guys' names are. They're so already appointed. It's going to be issue as apostles, and uh, maybe we'll be in the land of Israel. Maybe we'll be going up to Jerusalem from the nations for the feast of Sukkot, like it says in Zechariah chapter 14 which is another part in the era. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to meet these guys in person, and getting to, getting to see them. So this is just, this is, a, this is a profound glimpse of the future, something to look forward to. And uh, the term here is like the regeneration, is how the New American Standard renders it. Are there any other translations that have a different rendering of that? I'm curious. Rebirth? Okay. The, the Hebrew term behind that thought is chadash, and uh, that's also the term for renewal. Where he talks about the renewal of the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, in Isaiah chapter 66. So all that to say, obviously God still has a plan for Israel. The people of Israel still matter to Him. This thing isn't over yet. And obviously too, the tribes of Israel are going to be important to God in the future. That's a little something to kind of, kind of uh, write down and tuck in the back of back of our mind. There's a there's a I'm going to do a little what we call a drop. It's where you take a verse and then you kind of weave a theme from it. You kind of go deeper even than maybe what the actual verse says. And you can tell me whether you think it applies or not. In chapter 20, we are reading the parable about the last being first and the first being last, and how some people, generations that have gone before, have poured out their lives and they've suffered greatly and they worked hard for the kingdom to advance God's kingdom. And and, you know, before Messiah comes, more people come in, and maybe they don't do as much work. And uh, that's kind of the idea behind this parable. And of course, Yeshua tells it just in a really ordinary context. He talks about blue-collar working. He talks about, you know, doing your job for the day and getting your wages. This is something these guys are very familiar with. And in verse 12... Actually, we'll, we'll read verse 11 also. 20 verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying... These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. So we have this picture of some men who have worked a full 12-hour day. That's a heavy duty shift when you're working outdoors in the middle of summer in the Middle East. And they're complaining about these guys who just got in and they worked the last hour, right before sundown. I mean, everybody was off by then, the breeze was blowing, there wasn't much work to be done. And they all got paid the same by, the, uh, by their employer. And they were kind of sad about that. They felt like there was some injustice there. And I appreciated the description of their work. They bore the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And we usually think of these guys as like, well these guys are the ones who just don't get it. They don't understand that the employee, ha- the employer, sorry, he has the right to do what he wants with his money. He can give it to whoever he wants. But I think there's a deeper insight here. If we read this in the context of church history, I mean, we as the Messiah have been around for a couple thousand years almost. And we, I think, are like the people who are getting in at the last hour. I mean, generation after generation has gone before us. And, you know, when you read read the annals of church history, there are people who have suffered greatly for the cause of Messiah. There are people who have been tortured excruciatingly. They have laid down their lives. They've lost family members for the cause of the gospel. They've really paid a high price. You could see that they're like the people who have borne the burden of the work. And they've, they've, they've suffered under the, the scorching heat of the sun. We could use that analogy. And I think it's a great reminder that we're like the Johnnies come lately in, in the greater scheme of history. We're the new kids on the block. And for me, anyway, to realize that is very humbling. I realize that generations have gone before me, and they have, they have toiled for the kingdom. They have laid down their lives. And uh, for those of us who know our church history, you know, we've studied our church history and some of us have been shocked to discover the, the skeletons in the closet, the dark side of church history. There has been anti-Semitism. There has been something of an apostasy falling away from some of the original biblical faith. Um, there, there, there's been some messy stuff because when humans get involved, it gets messy. When, when we religious humans get involved, it gets really messy. So it, there has been that element. But, you know, and, and sometimes we, we, we read church history and some of us really wrestle with this. It. It's it's hard to deal with. And for me anyway, it's a great reminder to focus on the good that previous generations have accomplished. That they did the best with what they had, that there have been people in every era who have loved God with all their hearts and they have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And we we, we honor them, we uphold our, our believing heritage in that regard. I think also for those of us who are Messianic, or Messianic Jews, um, many of us are just coming back to the roots of our faith through embracing the Torah, a Torah lifestyle that Messiah modeled for us. And uh, again, we are really, Johnny's come lately to the Jewish tradition, most of us. Many of us are really new to the Torah. And I think it's, once again, it's a great reminder to honor the Jewish world who have paid a very high price to uphold the Torah. The Jewish people suffered greatly to honor the name of God, to preserve the written word, to do the things that God spoke that the people of Israel should do forever. Things like the weekly Sabbath, like circumcising children, like adhering to the dietary laws. I thought it was really fitting that this theme pops up in today's Parsha because this is the central theme of Hanukkah. I'm sure you're all you're already thinking about it as I talk about it. And all that to say, you know, just like there are some non-biblical stuff in church history, there's definitely some non-biblical stuff in Jewish history also. And when you, when you, you know, when you return to the Torah, of course you can't just swallow everything hook, line, and sinker. You have to use discernment. You want to compare things to the truth and the full counsel of the Word of God. But it's just a great reminder for us, I, I think, to honor the Jewish people also, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day, who have brought you the Torah, the written Word of God, who have preserved the traditions that our Messiah himself followed and modeled for us. And so, you know, as, as we examine some, some of the Jewish practice, and we sort out some of the non-biblical stuff, let's remember to do it with honor. Let's remember to honor the Jewish people and the Jewish community. That's something really really close on my heart. I mean, for some of you who are maybe newer to the whole messianic community and everything, maybe this doesn't maybe apply so much, but this is a very... This, I, I believe this is a hot topic in the messianic community, and it's something that needs to be addressed. You know. there's, a, there's a place for honor. Great. I, uh, I love reading Torah Club, First Fruits of Zion's Torah Club. They're on their sixth edition this year. I, I wanted to read a section from Daniel Lancaster's uh, commentary on the servant passage in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. I really enjoyed it. The reason I want to read it is because he gives some historical background to the master's comments. He-, he lists the geography of why Yeshua was saying what he was saying. And for me, anyway, it really brought it to life. Uh, So in Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 to 28, I'll just read a little bit to you here. Salome's request for her two sons took place just on the edge of Jericho on the road to Jerusalem. The other ten disciples heard about it and were immediately irked. Just off of the road from where they began to argue was Herod's winter palace. Did anybody know that? Hmm. It was a beautiful, ornate building with pools and gardens and courtyards surrounding it. Historically, it was the scene of much treachery. It was in his palace at Jericho that Herod the Great had encouraged Aristobulus, the popular young high priest, and Herod's brother-in-law, to go swimming. Ah, nice day for a dip in the pool, don't you think, Aristobulus? Do you think that was a good Herod voice? I don't know how Herod sounded. (laughs) Jealous of Aristobulus' popularity with the people, and frightened of his growing political power, Herod instructed one of his servants to drown the priest. With Herod looking on, Aristobulus wiped his into the water until he was drowned. The incident was reported as an accident, but everyone knew better. When word of the murderer reached Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt, Herod was forced to appear before them in Egypt. Thanks to copious bribes he had brought with him from Jerusalem, however, Antony disregarded the charges. Herod's palace in Jericho was also the place where that wicked king had imprisoned the prominent sages of his day in order to have them slaughtered in celebration of his own funeral. All of that had happened a generation before the disciples stood, arguing across the way from the palace, but those infamous stories were certainly well known and remembered. To quiet his disciples, Yeshua motioned toward the palace. In its greenery, wealth and splendor, patrolled by armed soldiers, frequented by Roman noblemen, and politicians, it was symbolic of political power. The master said, uh, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them." The disciples knew it all too well. Not so with you, he continued. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he closes here by mentioning a neat connection. In the same way, we learn in this week's Torah portion that Joseph served as a slave in Potiphar's house. His willing submission and humble spirit exemplify the servant heart Messiah speaks of here. Of course, Joseph's humble attitude of service toward others eventually elevated him to the highest position in the land. Before he could become great, he needed to be a servant. Now, many of you knew that about about that fact, that Herod's palace was right there on the way to Jericho, that it was highly probable that those stories were what Yeshua was referencing when he talked about the uh, the rulers of the, the, the Gentiles lord it o- lording it over them and their, their bad example. I didn't know that, but it really brought those words to life for me. Um, I, I have a book here that I read last year. It's one of the few books that so spoke to my heart, that I so connected with, that I would literally shout out loud sometimes when I was reading it. Like, it would just be like, that is so true. I've always thought that, but I never had to express it. It's a book called, Why Men Hate Going to Church. <laughs> and con- contrary to the, the, uh, the, the title, it's, it's, it's not a negative book. It's a very positive book. It talks about why there are fewer and fewer males who are going to church, uh, percentage-wise. And uh, then he has several chapters about what we can do to change that. I really connected with uh, the stuff this guy was talking about. But one of the things that he was talking about in this book was, and I don't know, I think this probably applies to all of us, not only to males, but he talked about how deep in the male soul there's, there's a need for greatness. You know, to, to be someone great in some way, to do something great in some way, and maybe for some of us it's been really suppressed from childhood in the name of whatever, false humility, or something or other and uh, maybe especially in Saskatchewan sometimes we deal with that. I'm not sure. But uh, he, he talks about how that was put there by God. Because God wants each of us to grow up to become great for Him. To bring greatness to His name. And to live lives, like great lives for Him. To accomplish great things for, for Him who is worthy. I, I, that really spoke to me. And uh, I feel like uh, Yeshua's words in this, this uh, section also really tie into that. It's notable that when... You see his two disciples, James and John, this is funny, like, their mom brings them to the Master, and she's like, okay, so Master, you know, they, you see, she does the whole thing, like, she gets down on her knees before him, and she's like, oh, Master, let my son sit on your right and left-hand side in the kingdom at the banquet table. I mean, talk about ambition, hey? And it's, his response is very notable. Instead of being like, You are the most arrogant person I've ever met in my whole life. Or instead of like scolding him and being like, You don't have a clue about humility. Like, you really have a lot to learn. It's interesting what what he responds with. He just asks her a question. Well, he asks them actually. He says, Can you guys go through the stuff that I'm going to go through? And what he was doing there is he was showing them the path to that intimacy with the Master. He was showing the biblical way to greatness in the kingdom. And he didn't say that was a bad thing. He just showed them how to get there. He said, guys, it's going to take a lot of humbling yourselves. It's going to be really painful. You know, like the, the degree of excruciating pain that I'm going to go through, you're going to encounter that too on the path to greatness in the kingdom. And for me, anyway, it really, to realize that really set me free because I realized God is calling us to greatness in His kingdom, but it doesn't look like the world's definition of greatness. The greatest servant is the greatest in the kingdom. The greatest lover of God's Torah. The, the, the greatest keeper of His commandments. According to Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. The greatest person, so the person who's greatest at teaching other people to keep God's commandments. That is who Yeshua said is truly great in the kingdom. And that's a call to each one of us. It's a call to, to rise to that. And, and to, uh, to grow in that, in, in that. So I really appreciated that about Yeshua. I, I was talking recently with a friend of mine from the Regina area. He really loved computer games. He was addicted to computer games. He liked the computer games where you can be really great. You can do great stuff. You can of the story, you know, where, where you do whatever. And he said he re- recently realized that he was living in a fantasy world. He, he realized that he was created by this need deep within him for heroism. And, and, and to be strong, to be a strong man. And he was expressing it through computer games. And so he, he swore off of computer games. He said, God has something real for me. I want to be a real hero in the I want to be a truly strong man. I want to do, like, great things for real. And so, no more computer games. And I think that's a great practical illustration of, uh, the master's teaching in that regard. If we're so caught up in, like, you know, doing our own thing and gratifying ourselves and it's a little harder to think about serving other people because we're busy serving ourselves. Maybe that's a practical application. I I see three really beautiful insights into Yeshua as, in Hebrew you call them like a, a benedon, like a human being, the Son of Man. And I wanted to share those because they really touched my heart. In chapter twenty, verse thirty-two, when the two blind guys come to the master, I mean. Here's the Master. He's, he's the omnipresent Messiah. Hamachon. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He's omniscient. I mean, he's, he's fully tapped into the spirit of knowledge who created the universe. And yet, look at what he asks these guys. He says, so, what do you want me to do for you? Why did he ask them that? Didn't he know? Well, I assume he did. Why did he ask him that? Maybe the same reason he asks us that. Maybe, maybe the Master invites each one of us to stop and examine our hearts. And look at what we most really want in life. What our deepest desires are. Because maybe those point to Him. Maybe He wants to meet us there. Maybe He wants to do that stuff in our life. But maybe it starts with asking Him. Maybe. Maybe it starts with asking Him. I want you to do this in my life. I want you to do this for that person. I love it that there's a place in a relationship with Him for that. It's a good thing maybe to like, stop and ask ourselves at some point, maybe tonight or whatever. Even talk about it as a family. Maybe you'll learn something new about each other. Another really personal insight that I love about Yeshua, the rabbi, this is very Jewish, when he was like, when he's dialoguing with the Pharisees, and he's, he's like arguing fine points of Torah with other Jews, he often opens his questions by saying, haven't you read? And for me anyway, it's just this charming... Personal insight into Yeshua. I, 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 have yet to have encountered anywhere else in Jewish literature where that was a common way of opening a dialogue. I don't know, Paul Daniel, you, you studied Jewish literature. Have you, have you encountered anything? Okay, that might have been like a Yeshuaism. ism If I could explain that term. Haven't you read this? So, it's, for me, anyway, I really love that. I mean, these guys were Torah scholars. They had the whole Bible memorized, eh? They had read it over and over again. And here he is asking them, haven't you read? So I, th- I think there's a note of humor there. He probably asked you with a smile on his face. I want to try and incorporate that into my, like, conversations more, just for fun. <laughs> we should try and do that, just because, I mean, we're disciples of Yeshua, and our rabbi, you could even call him, and a disciple's job is to imitate the master, right? So, maybe we can try and incorporate some of those fun little personal things into our conversations also. That was something I really enjoyed from this parasha. And then, and then the final one, it's more of a, like a personal thing about the Master. Um, I shared a couple of weeks ago how something I really struggle with is my image of God. I, I often... I, I sometimes have, I have to... Like, I struggle with an image of God that's sometimes cold and distant. And of course, He's sovereign. He rules the universe. But He doesn't really care. That's kind of the image I sometimes struggle with. And I, I've had to consciously work through that and keep letting that go and, and keep opening my eyes to my, my true Father in heaven. And... Uh, there's there's a passage in here that really touched my heart this week also. It's in the end of chapter thirty chapter twenty sorry, and, uh, and you just stop and and you envision it in your mind. You have this blind man. You know in Israel, if you were blind, you were severely like it was not a good situation for you. Life was so hard, and uh, of course it's not like being blind now is so great either. It is especially hard, and uh, of course so you have these these guys, and uh, after asking them. What, what they wanted him to do for them. They say, Master, we want our eyes to be opened. And it says, moved with compassion, Yeshua touched their eyes. And immediately they regain their sight and follow them. And I love it that it doesn't just say, touch their eyes. It says that the compassion he felt for these guys in his heart moved him. Like he couldn't restrain himself. He couldn't hold back. He had to touch them and heal them. Because he loved them so much. Because he fell with them. And for me, anyway, that's a very touching picture of our God, that, that He is moved with compassion, that He has a heart that is nothing but warm towards His people, towards humanity in general, and that He feels with us. He feels, maybe even feels more deeply for us than we do when we're wallowing in our self-pity, or when, we're, when we have those moments where we realize the suffering of humanity and the pain of it just is almost paralyzing. Maybe God feels even deeper. Maybe He loves us how Yeshua shows us who the father most truly is so I want to I want to look now at the uh, the Torah portion and Hebrew this is this called Vayeshev. it's from the first words and Jacob lived or Jacob dwelt in the land of his fathers Vayeshev Yaakov Genesis chapter 37 verse 1 and um, we're going to do something fun here I'm going to play transformer I'm going to transform into something else so just give me one second Okay, I transform. I'm not Izzy anymore. I'm Hananya the Sadducee. I'm Hananya the Sadducee. Now, have any of you read about us in the New Testament? Okay, you've read about my sect. Well, uh, what do you know about me? We do not believe in the resurrection. I'm a biblical literalist. Scripture only. Hmm? <laughs> Stop! Stop. If you didn't believe in the resurrection, would you be very happy? Stop! It's all talking to be over. Anything else? I'm, yes, thank you very much. I'm the cultural elite. Yes, I'm a member of the priesthood, the sons of Zadok. We rule from Jerusalem. John called me names. Yes, those pesky Nazarenes did call me immigrant. Yeah, thank you. I'm very legalistic, John. Okay. Did anybody notice what the very first thing about Sadducees is? Like the the highlight of their doctrine. Hmm? They deny the resurrection. Would you like it? If I shared with you an insight from this Parsha that proved to me that there is going to be a resurrection? Yes. That would be the easy way. Why don't you share it with me? Can anybody see an insight in this Parsha that proves that there's going to be a resurrection?: yeah. Thanks for playing along with the, the I have. Yeah. You. Uh, what, what did you? Oh yeah, hi, Oh yeah, you're my friend. You realize that I'm part of the powering. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Joseph's friend, the twelve stars, and the sun and the moon were bowed down to him. His mother, whose father in the truth, has birthed his mother. is dead. How can the dream come? To- no, no, don't go on. Rachel is dead in the dream, or, or in the story, right? Yeah, yeah. So Okay, the, the end of end of story, or uh, okay. or did you have more to say? As a Sadducee, I'm feeling a little threatened right now. But okay, go on. Just because like, I did ask you to. How can the dream come to pass if his mother is already dead? Uh, it was just a dream. Yeah, it was just a dream, that's <laughs> it. I'm not just That's an excellent point. Rachel was already dead, but Joseph dreamed that there would be a time when the son... You know, which interpreted was his father, and the moon, who was interpreted as his mother Rachel, would bow down to him. That's a, that is what I would see as a foreglimpse of the resurrection. It's on a literal level, it's interesting, hey. So you know, take that little scriptural weapon, put it in your biblical arsenal. The next time you meet a Sadducee like me, you'll be armed. Yeah, they all died. <laughs> and if they get what they wanted, they're not coming back either. Oh, God. <laughs> Great. Okay, I, uh, I want to read to you yet again from Torah Club. But Something that, I, like when I read the Word, you know, there's so many levels that you can read it on, but for me personally, I really love... The literary side to the scriptures, I mean, the wording is often so beautiful, it is so profound, it flows so nicely like poetry, the stories are so crammed with drama, with romance, with suspense, with all of the elements, it's like a great story or a great movie. Did any of you notice that? And I don't, I I don't know, I I think the Joseph story must be like the creme de la creme of just stories that have really value in the Torah. I mean, wow. Just, just that alone tells me God wrote the Bible. Because like, human minds, I, I don't know, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with such a great story. I, I wanted to just read to you a short, a short quote about the irony that comes true in this, uh, in this portion. We have, it, uh, we have it here. It's from Genesis chapter 37, verses 25 to 36. It's about the goat and the robe. And it says, uh, The brothers decided to deceive their father into believing that Joseph was dead by slaughtering a goat and dipping Joseph's robe into the blood. Then they delivered the torn, blood-stained robe to Joseph, Jacob and say, We found this. Please recognize. And in Hebrew the phrase is haker na. Can everybody say haker Haker na please recognize whether it's your son's tunic or not. Those words will come back on Judah's head in the very next chapter. Jacob recognizes his son's robe, sees the goat's blood the laments, It's my son's tunic! A wild beast has devoured him! Joseph has surely been torn to pieces! Our hearts break for Jacob, but we cannot help but note the grim irony of the situation. His sons have deceived him with a slaughtered goat and Joseph's robe. It was with the slaughtered goat that Jacob deceived Isaac into believing he was Esau. He served the goat meat to Isaac, claiming it was quarry from the hunt, and he wore goat skins on his hands and neck, imitating Esau's hairy skin. It was by wearing Esau's garment that Jacob was able to complete the deception and convince his father that he was Esau. Now the ruse has come full circle. Jacob's life has been meted out, measure for measure, ruse for ruse, Swap for swap, robe for robe, goat for goat. That's, like, that's just a slight slice of the irony that we see in, in these parcels. Did anybody else note any irony as you were reading through this? Another one, of course, would be with Judah. He deceives his father with the goat. He goes on to be deceived in the next chapter by Tamar. He received a goat also in payment, and uh, it's just that, that the theme of concealed identities and things not being what they seem to be just run through these these scripture passages. And of course, there's some deep teachings in those. One of the things we've been talking about in the last several weeks is this theme we're on of appearances that things are not as they seem to be, and we've been talking about how if we just look at the world based on appearances and we go with kind of the the status quo um, definition of reality, we are going to be living in a world that is less than in touch with real reality. Uh, We've been talking about how needful it is to to see the world through Yeshua's eyes, to get the Father's perspective on things. Because if not, we're going to be like some of these guys in the story. We are going to be so out to life. We are just not going to get it. We're going to think we know what's going on, and we're just not going to have a clue. And this kind of continues in this parasha. Last parasha, we talked about how, how ironic it was and how paradoxical it was that Esau, who is like your ultimate fleshly man, who is like your ultimate God, godless guy who just didn't really care about his biblical heritage or whatever, he, he ended up getting to live in the land of Israel. He ended up starting a country, Edom. They had quite a nice line of kings long before Israel ever had a king, it says in the Torah. Looked like they were very successful. Looked like that guy sure had God's blessing. And uh, meanwhile, Jacob, who had God's blessing and birthright, he goes down to Egypt. In other words, he goes out of the land that was promised. They, they plunge into exile. You know, eventually Pharaoh, a Pharaoh arises that is absolutely brutal and brutalizes the people of Israel. It was an extremely traumatic time for them in their national history. And if you look at Esau and Jacob we were talking about last week, who did it look like God was? With? Well, Esau. But as it turns out, such was the case. Things were not as they appeared to be. And uh, we have the same, we have the same thing. Joseph is the good guy in the story. Joseph has integrity. Joseph is doing his very best to do what's right. And he, he really gets rewarded for it. His brothers betray him. I'm sure that was very painful to him. He gets sold to the Ishmaelites. He goes down to Egypt. When he resists temptation, he gets even lower. He's stuck in a, a prison, which probably was a very unpleasant experience. And I mean, this is, the, he's, this is the good guy. Is this how God treats the righteous? Is this the reward they get for trying to do what's right? And meanwhile, Judah, we have this chapter with Judah in his antics, it's almost like in, it's almost like, uh, with the story of Joseph book, like a uh, book ended on either side. Judah's doing what he wants. He's just free to run around and, you know, it, it looks like Judah is the guy who is really living it up. Judah like, is like the guy who is getting the blessing. At least, you know, by, by the world standards, you want to be like Judah, not like Joseph. But things were not as they appeared to be. The story didn't end there, did it? Judah's story of loose living, of not really giving a care about God. It it ended in great heartbreak. He lost his wife. He lost his two older sons. We don't know what happened to his younger son. He got tricked by his daughter-in-law, which must have been extremely humiliating when it went public. Scandalous. That's Judah. That's That's how his life ended. And what happened with Joseph? Joseph went to the lowest of the low in Egypt. But from there, God did reward him. God did raise him up. Blessed were the more, those who mourned because they were comforted. Blessed were those who, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness because they were filled. And of course, the two statements from, from Matthew chapter 5 are such a great illustration of that. So, you know, that's an encouragement to us. To do what's right and to love God because of who He is. And to look at the big picture. Because if things are tough, when you're doing your best, it's going to get better. Be encouraged. It's going to get better. Just stay true to Him. Expectation. That was the other thing we've been on lately. Uh, you know, Isaac and Rebecca, they were childless. Things were not going as they expected. But God did answer their prayers. Twenty years later, Rebecca didn't get what she expected again. And she sounded very baffled, puzzled, maybe even bewildered. Maybe she had a faith crisis. We, we see the same uh, theme in this podcast. And I think it's relevant because each of us have subbed to unconscious expectations about God and what's going to happen if we cash in with Him or whatever. You know, it's like, well, you throw your lot in with God and life's going to be great. It's just going to be one smooth ride, a bed of roses, everything's going to be super, you know. Basically, Jesus exists to make you happy. And if you say this in His prayer, you'll be happy and everything's going to be perfect. Is like as crazy as it is, you have these subconscious expectations, hey? Even though, like, the master did teach differently. And Joseph, I think Joseph's life is a great illustration of how uh, sometimes, even though ultimately, yes, there is glorious gift promise to us in the kingdom, things are going to be so wonderful. I mean, you know, but we do have some trials in the meantime. Um, Joseph had these dreams they placed some expectations in his mind. And these were, these were expectations in accord with reality, weren't they? But things didn't go as he, as he thought. And there are four key insights about Jacob's expectations that I wanted to point out. Because they're not immediately uh, discernible. Uh, the first one is in chapter 37, verses 15 to 17. And it talks about a man says, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They've moved from here, for I heard them say, Let's go down to Dotan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotan. Who was that guy? Where did he come from? How was it that he heard Joseph's brothers talking, and he appeared just in the nick of time to send Joseph to his disaster? Did you have a thought about that? Something that, similar that happened earlier. A man. Oh yeah, J- Jacob wrestled with a man also. I, I wonder how many times Joseph referenced that event in his mind as he, he went through the troubles that he went through. Maybe you stopped and thought about that man and wondered what that was all about. Maybe there was a clue from God. Um really—you know how we've been talking about the tittles of the Torah. Yeshua said, "Not a jot or a tittle would be done it. And we've been talking about these little you know, Hebrew texts that are teaching. You're never going to have them in your English Bible because it's impossible to translate them. And uh, my—I have my uh, my my tittle radar has detected a tittle of the Torah in this parsha. I wanted to I wanted to show it to you here I'm just gonna walk over and point it out this is the bottom of the page this is a picture of my uh, my Tanakh my Hebrew Bible it says verse 12 um, Nikud all there's a two-letter Hebrew word there Aleph Tov Et is how that word is spelled and what that means is there's there are dots over a Hebrew word there that's spelled with the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet now there's like this really deep really profound teaching about this, that we can't go into into two minutes depth, but let's just put it like this: Revelation used the alpha and the omega, didn't he? The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. What are the chances that Yeshua, a Hebrew-speaking Jew, appeared to John, who was also a Hebrew-speaking Jew, and he talked to him in Greek? It's actually not very probable. There's a great chance that he originally spoke in Hebrew, and we'll go into the whole teaching sometime because it explains a lot of things. But uh, for now. It's it's enough to know that Yeshua said he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the Aleph and the Tav in Hebrew, and that is how that little two-letter word is spelled. Aleph and Tav, Alpha and Omega. And it pops up all over the Hebrew Bible in very interesting places that point to Messiah. So this is interesting that in the Torah, there are these dots over this this two-letter word that points to Messiah, and it says something about him. So let's just have a look at that. It's in chapter 37, verse 12. It says, Then his brothers went after their father's flock in Shechem. It's the very first verse of this narrative about like Joseph's betrayal. And this word isn't translated in your Hebrew Bible because it doesn't really have a function in English. In Hebrew, it, it indicates the, like, the receiver of the action in a sentence. What's the technical term for that, Paul Daniel? The marker of the direct object. So... Anyway, the, uh, the point of all this is just to say that there's something in the story about Messiah, who is the Archantel awesome of the Alpha and the Omega. Um, on a very basic level, we could see that Messiah went down to Egypt. Messiah wasn't kidding when he said, I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. On a yet deeper level, we can also see that There's something about Messiah that indicates that he's going to be rejected by his brothers. And that things that happened in Joseph's life are going to happen in the life of Yeshua, whose father's name was Joseph, therefore his Hebrew name was Yeshua ben Yosef, and who also had a little brother named Joseph. Did anyone notice that? Yeshua's dad was named Joseph. He had a little brother named Joseph. Yeshua had Joseph's on either side of him. I wonder if that's a hint that there's something about the Joseph story that points to Messiah in very profound ways. Was it an accident that his, like, his uh, legally adopted birth dad's his legally adopted dad's name was Joseph? Was his younger brother's name Joseph? I don't think so. So, as we as we continue on in the Joseph narrative, we're going to see some very interesting things about Messiah. Okay, two more two more insights into Joseph's expectations and the way things played out in a very creative ways. So oh, if you want to flip to the next slide. I'll just show you. There's the tod right in the middle of there. I'll point it out to you so you can see. See, it says they wrote to shepherd at son. There's the Olfentod with the dots over it. At son, which is like uh, the uh, flock or sheep, and it goes up from there. Okay, two more insights into that. This next one is like my first. one. I share it every single year because I think it's really cool. (laughs) When it talks about Joseph getting thrown down into prison, in chapter 39, verse 20, let's look at that. Chapter 39, verse 20. It says, So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. So he wasn't just thrown into the jail, he was there in the jail. (laughs) Just to make it clear, um, the Hebrew doesn't say Joseph's master threw him in jail. It says Joseph's masters threw him in jail. Okay, now on a literal level, that's just the way you say it in Hebrew. I don't know why, but you say it in the plural. But on a deeper level, it says it wasn't just Joseph's earthly master, Potiphar, who threw him in jail. Who is Joseph's ultimate master? Yahweh was Joseph's ultimate master. So who was it that threw him in jail? Elohim. It was Elohim. It was God. That is correct. And for me anyway, that's a great assurance to realize that we have a master and he purchased us at a very high price with his own blood because he loves us and we are dear to his heart. And when you go through that experience and you say yes to him and you become his, then you can know that you have a master who's taking care of you. And the things that happen to you from there on or he has his hand in it. Even if it seems like temporary disaster. And I think Joseph is cognizant of that fact because when it was all said and done and he was re- reunited with his father and reconciled to whatever degree with his brothers, he was able to say, Guys, God sent me down to Egypt. It wasn't me. It was God. That's so And there's just like this... So anyway, there's just like this cool hint of it in the Hebrew. that it says, Joseph's master's Threw him in prison. Okay, here's the last one. Let's say you had someone from another culture who spoke another language and you wanted to transfer him to an entirely new country and teach him a new culture and instill in him a new language and you wanted to give him a very high government position. Would you have to teach him the language first? Yes. What, does anyone know what the Hebrew word for an intensive language school is? Ulpan. If you make Aliyah, if you immigrate to Israel, then you go to Ulpan first, usually for four to six months. Intensive Hebrew language school. So here's the question. If God wanted to take Joseph to Egypt, the Egyptian of the high court, the Egyptian that the, the government of Egypt spoke, and, uh, and Pharaoh's cronies, and... Uh, the language that was used in the political world of Egypt, where would be a great place to send Joseph so he'd have lots of time on his hands, to spend lots of time with people from Pharaoh's court, and uh, hopefully learn the language in the process? The prison of the high court. That is correct. You know, from what we know of Joseph, he wasn't a lazy dude that just kind of sat around on his hands and wondered what to do next. Joseph was, was a man of action, and he was very diligent, and he was also very intelligent. And... I'm pretty sure that Joseph didn't waste his time in prison. He was probably busy interacting interact with Egyptians in their own language. He was probably learning the language of the, the court of Pharaoh. So that, a couple of years later, when it was finally time for him to go to Pharaoh's court, he probably spoke very good Egyptian. He probably spoke like crisp, technical, high court Egyptian. So, it, it, for me anyway, it, it's, it, I just thought it was really cool that there was strategy going on here. We didn't just get dumped in this jail for nothing. And I think on a, on, a, on a practical application, when we look at our own lives, maybe often they look like all of these threads and all of these themes, and they, we just don't understand how they interconnect. We don't see what the bigger picture is. We don't understand why this happened, or why that happened, or why that person did to me, or why I ended up here. But it was like that for Joseph too. And it all did come together in the end. There was a big picture that was being developed. Okay. Let's be encouraged with that. Yeah, they are a different ethnic strain, aren't they? Did they begin speaking Arabic when Arabic was imported with the Muslim incursion, or what? That's interesting. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. Um, something that we prayed before reading the Torah was, God, please sweeten the words, the words of the Torah in our mouths, in the mouths of our children, in, 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 in the mouths of the whole house of Israel. All of your people. And we finished that prayer by saying, and God, please help us to study your word for its own sake. I don't know if any of you noticed that. What does that mean? Well, what it means is, just read what it says. And just read it because it's God's word. And God deserves attention. And... God's Word deserves attention. And you just kind of want to read it and take what it says. I mean, it's really tempting when we read the Joseph story to go into all of the deep messianic insights and and all of the layers of irony and all of these things. But on a really plain level, Joseph was an amazing guy. Joseph is one of my greatest heroes. And I wanted to point out seven traits about Joseph that I think are very admirable. Because Joseph was... You know, there's this big thing in the world about being successful... Joseph was successful in the eyes of God, according to God's standard. So maybe if we look at Joseph's life, we can discover how to be successful according to God's standard. And we're just going to zip through these, so buckle your, buckle your safety belt. <laughs> okay, Joseph was a beloved son. Chapter 37, verse 4. The foundation of Joseph's life is realizing that he was loved. And each of you in this room are beloved of your Father in heaven. And that's the start of it all. And if we haven't experienced that from him, just stop everything, put the brakes on life, and just go to the Father and let His love soak deep into your heart. And realize that you are you are a beloved son, you are a beloved daughter. Because without that realization, you might not go to where He wants you to go in life. Num- that's number one. Number two, for better or worse, Joseph was unafraid of public opinion. And I mean, we kind of laugh at his na- like, naivety. Is that how you say that? We, we kind of like, it's almost brash. Here's this hot-headed kid dreaming about taking over the family and being the leader, and he's out there telling his brothers about his dream, and it gets him in so much hot water. And we think, Joseph, you, you, you don't need to be doing that. And, you know, that, that was probably a weakness of his in his earlier years. But on the other hand, maybe it was a strength, too. Joseph was unafraid. People thought about him. He, he wasn't swayed by public opinion. And that turned out to be a great strength for him in government. And that's something to... Uh, look up to him in that regard that's a great insight Charlotte maybe he was just going to his brothers and talking about the dream that puzzled him because he didn't say and this is what it means they kind of reacted didn't they they said are you going to rule over us it's something and nothing to do with him because of older siblings yeah. they should have no more stuff mm-hmm. you know like I don't any of those kids that doesn't look up to their older siblings mm-hmm. that's a good insight that could very well be yeah thank you Number three, Joseph, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the Hebrew idiom for having a personal relationship with God. Okay? Get ready. Joseph walked with God. In other words, he had a personal relationship with God. That's so but it was so there in Joseph's life. It says that Yahweh was with him. Yahweh isn't just with everybody in that way. Yahweh is only with people like that who, whose hearts are with him. It says that very clearly also. You know, draw near to God, and then he'll draw near to you. Number four, Joseph was humble. Maybe hard to see that at first, but, but Joseph was humble. The fact that he, you know, that he resisted temptation, that he recognized that in the household of Potiphar, indicates that he had he he had sober judgment. He had a very accurate analysis of his place, and he was under he was under authority in a good way. Um, the the next one ties in number five. Joseph was intentional about life. He didn't just kind of put on the cruise control and float through life. Um, and, and we discover that when he's tempted, he, he starts pointing out the situation to Plotus' wife extremely clearly. He says, This is my position in the household. This is my job description. This is who God is. Therefore, I can't do that. I can't go along with it. And for me, anyway, that's a good inspiration to, to be intentional about life, to ask myself, What is my calling? What is my kingdom job description? What part do I play in the household of God? What are my giftings? When we start asking questions about that, and- maybe his families also to come into that the power that Joseph lived in. Uh, number six Joseph had integrity and he preserved his integrity and number seven this is my favorite Joseph was a caring guy he cared about other people I mean here he is in prison. if anybody had a reason to wallow in self pity and and do the oh woe is me liturgy that some people indulge in, in their prayer times it was Joseph but you noticed that when the baker and the cup bearer were thrown in prison, and Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they weren't looking so great. They were sad. And he asked, "Guys, why his your is so sad? What's the what, what's the matter?" And, and and that began the story of his ascendancy to the position of second in command in Egypt. Anyway, that that was really cool. Just to realize, like, terrible people. Look at their faces. See how they're doing. So I love that. Okay, three Hebrew insights. Number one, it says that Joseph's brothers weren't able to speak to him literally in Shalom. That tells us that Shalom has to do with relationships. Shalom isn't primarily even in reference to our relationship with God, although that is the half of it. The Bible very clearly states that Shalom is about our relationships with each other. And that is why there's such a high priority placed on relationships in the body of Jesus. Because the fruit of the spirit is love, and then it's joy, and what's the third one? Peace. That's about the relationships with each other. Um, Paul said that the kingdom of God isn't so much about eating and drinking as it is about righteousness and peace. And in the Holy spirit. So that's the that's the Hebrew contextual understanding of peace. Um, Joseph's answer to his dad is really touching. In thirty-seven verse thirteen, his dad asked him to go on this mission, and Joseph says. Hineini. Hebrew. It's translated like, here I am, here, here I am, Father, I'm available. And if you want to have a one word prayer to pray, if you just want really, really short liturgy in the morning when you get up, just say the one word Hebrew prayer. Hineini. Father, here I am. Father, I'm available. Can you all say that together? Hineini. Hineini. Write that on on like a sticky notes. Put it on your bathroom mirror or on your bedroom wall or something. And every morning get up and say, Ineni, to the father. And the last one is Joseph. This is the first time that these things show up in the Bible. What's the Hebrew name for these things on the corner of my Tleet, my prayer See Titi. There's another word for these, and that is patilim. Can you all say patilim? It means like cords that have been twisted together. This is the first time these things come up in the Bible. Judah gave these to Tamar, and what Judah gave her was his seal, his staff, and his cord. Those words go over our heads. But if I were to give you the modern equivalent, you might he gave her his keys, his driver's license, and his credit card. Okay? That's where you seal, your staff, and your corridor in the ancient world. It's, it has to be with ID and your ability to do business transactions. These have to do with ID. There's something about these that is all about who we are as a people. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Okay, three parallels with the Messiah that I couldn't help but point out because they're so exciting. (laughs) Because you're not going to get them unless you read it in Hebrew. In chapter 40, verse 15, Joseph says, I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. What does that tell us about Messiah? Is there an original Hebrew concept for our Hebrew-speaking Messiah? who read the Hebrew Bible, who prayed in Hebrew, from which maybe he's been stolen throughout the core of his history? Could there be an original Jewish context to our Jewish Messiah from which he's been taken? Maybe he's a Gentile? That's kind of what I got out of it. Yeshua's been stolen from his original Jewish context. And in our generation, God is restoring our understanding of who he is on a very basic level. And that's how we can see that parallel in the life of Joseph. Oh, this one floored me. Joseph's garment is called a, it's called a pasim, it's like a, it's like you know, multicolored garment. And the word there to key in the is pasim. Now, there's an ancient Jewish tradition from before Messiah was born. It's recorded in the Midrash that draws this parallel between garment and casting lots, because the word for casting lots pretty much the same as his garment so there's this ancient Jewish tradition that was floating around it's not written really in the Bible that says that Joseph's brothers actually cast lots for his garment what did they do with Yeshua son of Joseph's garment if you were a Jew who was familiar with this tradition in Yeshua's generation that would have been riveting and unmistakable and you can only get that from reading Jewish literature from that time yeah So those were the those were the biggest insights for me from this Parsha. And let's 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 uh if anyone has any comments or questions, we have another ten or fifteen minutes and uh then we'll then we'll wrap up. If any of you need to like we don't usually have three hours, we usually have two hours. So if any of you need to like get up and move around or whatever, you can do that. Do some cartwheels or jumping jacks or whatever, like feel free to do that, but yeah, does anybody have any comments or questions from this Parsha? And also from the New Covenant passage? Okay. I'm going to drop one deep bomb on you from the, from the Parsha because some people I think are really going to love this. There's a connection between the Hebrew word for sheaves and worlds in Hebrew. There's a book here, Etymological Biblical Dictionary of Hebrew. It's, it's a phenomenal book if you want to really go deep. And the basic idea there is just like Joseph's brother's sheaves eventually were subjugated to his. There are quite a few worldviews out there right now. And if you ever read the news or study global conflicts, then you'll discover that they're all, a lot of them are in conflict with each other. And generally they struggle for ascendancy. And if you're dealing with certain ones, even like Islam, they want to take over the world. And the Hebrew word for this is the so just like Joseph's brother, sheaves, all bowed down to his, Yeshua has a world here. We're going to call it Messiah's world. And all the other world and ideologies and agendas are ultimately going to be subjugated to Messiah's world. Messiah's world is like the rock. And when he rolls in, everything else is crushed to powder. And the degree to which our little worlds are not in touch with the reality of his world is the degree to which our lives are going to be blown apart when he comes back, and we're going to be really traumatized, to put it lightly. So it's a great, it's a great, it's a great inspiration to study the truth of the word, to conform our lifestyles to the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation, and to make sure that Messiah's world is our world. It's going to make things a lot easier when he comes back. I, there are some other really cool insights with, the, with those cognates, those Hebrew cognates, but I'm not going to get into them. And to go off, just like there were 11 sheaves that bowed down to Joseph, how does the book of Matthew end? Let's finish with that verse. Because Yeshua is the first and the last, and it's nice to finish off with uh, something about Him. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Yeshua had designated. When they saw Him, they bowed down. There's the the eleven bowing down to Joseph. Here's the eleven bowing down to Yeshua. He is worthy to be worshipped. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the Internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it. If you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at carnomasaia.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.